Hi, my name is Steve Williams. And I'm Clara Williams. We would like to welcome you to our new podcast, Voices from the Choir, Oh Happy Day Reflections. This podcast is about my journey growing up in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay area, along with my cousin Diane, my childhood friends Kathy, Donald, Arva, Gwen, and Arva and Gwen's cousin Ron, and our time as members of the Edwin Hawkins Singers. We'll each share stories which began with singing in the Northern California State Youth Choir of the Church of God in Christ. Our incredible journey starts when we recorded an album that included the song, Oh Happy Day, which changed our lives. We've never shared these stories until now. Over the years of our marriage, Claire has always wanted to tell the story of this life-changing event. I'll be your host through these nine episodes as we hear from these voices from the choir. In this episode, you will hear from my good friend, Kathy Gaines. I first met Kathy when I joined the Northern California State Youth Choir. Kathy has a lot of history to share because she was one of the original members of the choir. Kathy and I got to know each other during the Edwin Hawkins Singers' first national tour. We eventually became college roommates. Kathy has gone on to have a successful career in the IT industry. Kathy, I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Can you get us started by just giving us some background on where you grew up and where your family's from? Yeah. Um, Basically, my family was from the Louisiana area where my dad had been a bishop and had an opportunity to come to build a church in California. At that time, I had actually been adopted about six months prior to my parents leaving. They always said that two things happened very quickly. They had never intended after having a son who was in his 20s to adopt a baby, and they had never intended actually to leave. Louisiana. So within the span of six months, their lives completely changed. And they found themselves in Berkeley, California, actually, where I grew up as a small child. And by the time that I was just about ready to go to high school, my parents moved to Oakland. So I have always kind of seen myself as part Oakland, part Berkeley. My dad, being a pastor, pushed me into music at a very early age. And I always say that there were interesting influences with growing up with my parents, and that is because my father having a church, having a church choir, and, of course, in the Church of God in Christ, congregations, fellowship together a lot more across churches than sometimes in other denominations. So what ended up happening was very early on, my parents said I was about two years old and they were traveling, I believe it was to Sacramento, to a convention in which our choir was supposed to be coming on the bus afterwards. And the bus broke down before they could get there to sing. So my mother had this bright idea to get me to sing for everybody, as I had always done in the living room with the vacuum cleaner hose. And so my mother said to me, why don't you sing a song for daddy? And she said, I looked at her and just simply said, okay. (laughs) So when it came time for my father, who was actually preaching that night to get up, my mother walked me up to the podium and stood me on top of a chair in order to be in front of the microphone. And according to her, she said, I was absolutely delighted to sing my favorite song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, for the Bible tells me so. And she said, by the time that I had finished, the entire congregation was up on their feet. And she said, my father was just in awe of the fact that one, she had gotten me to do it. And second, because I just did it as if 
it was nothing. (laughs) So that began my father's belief that I was to be his number one singer in the family as well as in the church. (laughs) So so, as they say, a tiny star was born. (laughs) No doubt about it. And it it reminds me of the scene in the Aretha Franklin. Yes. Right. (laughs) uh, uh, Television series with uh, Cynthia Revo, where that discovery, yes. you know what I mean, out of no yes. place that happens. But that's really interesting. Now, what part of Louisiana were your parents from? My father was from an area called, they were in New Orleans for a time. And people who are really familiar with the outskirts of New Orleans would recognize an area called Head of the Island. I've looked at it at a map can't understand why it even has the name island in it, because I didn't see that much water around it. However, that was where they had originally come from. And my mom and my dad had married very early on. And the church, I guess, had a lot to do with it. But my dad's parents had died very early. So he ended up going back and forth to a rubber tire camp where they were tapping rubber trees. Mm as a 16-year-old, and he would pass the house because he said he had to walk quite a few miles. He would pass the house of this girl, and this girl would be outside on the porch singing. And as time would go on, he would pass, they would talk, he would pass, they would talk week after week, and he ended up asking this farmer if he could marry his 14-year-old. And the farmer said, yes, but she has to live at my house until she's 16. And so that was exactly what happened. Oh, my goodness. My parents married very Mm -hmm. early. My Mm -hmm. mother was 14 years old, as she reminded me, on my 14th birthday. And I I remember going, oh, no. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so, yeah, that was it. And they were married nearly 70 years. So it's just, yeah, it was. was And and that's a common story. Yeah. In terms of the same thing in my family. Yeah. For my grandmother. I think she was 16. She may have been 14, too. Yeah. But very young. And that was that big move, that migration from the rural south to. Yes. Um, especially California. Yes, yes. Was a was a really big thing. Right. And you yeah. said Berkeley is when they yeah, came. Yeah, they came to Berkeley. My brother, their oldest son, as I said, he was about 20, 22, 23 by the time that I was born and adopted. He had been a part of a very early migration, black migration from the South, actually to Chicago, where he was there. And early on, he went into brick masonry. And my mother's greatest joy was the fact that he had been instrumental in building the house that became Mahalia Jackson's brick home in Mm -hmm. Chicago. Mm -hmm. So my mother just thought that that was the most wonderful thing that he could have ever done, because Mahalia Jackson was truly my mother's idol. She always reminded me growing up of the sacrifices in the life that Mahalia Jackson had lived in spreading the gospel through music. And that was all that she really wanted from me. She wanted me to use my talent to spread God's word. And I had always promised her, yeah, I'm going to do that. And what were some of your other musical influences? Other gospel artists or did you listen to contemporary at all popular in your house? Early on growing up, I was not listening to pop music. I missed out on a lot of things. We did not have a TV until I was 12 years old. So other than seeing what was on television at other people's houses, I had no idea what was really going on on a regular basis. And so my world expanded, even though I didn't realize it. My world was going to expand when we actually left Berkeley and moved to Oakland, because that was the transition. I sort of had to come out of myself and seek a new community. And that community became church, where I became really aware of these phenomenal singers. But it also became my 
school community where I became aware of Mozart and Brahms and the writers of classical music and the different kinds of classical music. And I remember even earlier than there, I have a twin who later had a operatic career. And it was very interesting because at the same time I became aware of classical music, she was still actually living in Mississippi, becoming aware of classical music through opera singers, actually Jesse Norman and different people like that. She was having this awakening. So I always say the awakening was probably coming, but because I was surrounded by so much music, it was inevitable, I think, that I would end up where I was. Did you think of it as a possibility that those local artists, those gospel artists that you came up with could get beyond no. the local, that they could become no. much bigger? No, because I had no role model to know about that. I think if I would have known more about what I would call the music outside of gospel and church, and that includes, I always say gospel, but the church music Amazing Grace. Most people don't think of that as gospel music because in the black church, we also had hymnals. So we were also coming out of that typical black Methodist community of the South, and we brought the hymnals with us. Couldn't read the music just like we couldn't read it back in the South, Mm -hmm. and it had to be taught by rote. That was the beginning of our familiarity with the songs of the cross. There's a bomb in Gilead. We brought that with us from those old Southern and Eastern hymnals. But we brought it without the classical music training. It was all wrote to us, but we still held on to those hymnals. I always used to wonder, we don't ever really sing anything out of these hymnals. But when I would open them up, I would see the words of songs that we did sing. So I knew that that's where the tradition had really come from. And you mix that in with people who as they need to evolve, they're now making their own music. And so things like there's a highway to heaven is starting to become everybody's singing it. One church is learning it. The next church is learning it. And what was happening at that time also was as young people were beginning to hone their musical talent as writers and songsters, It was all actually happening in the church. Everything needs to evolve. And our way of evolving was exactly what we later saw with Ed, his ability and his motivation to write for his choir. And that was happening all over the Black community. People were learning songs by rote. You didn't know what congregation had made up this worship song, but you quickly learned it. And I always say one of the greatest talents of the Black church was for us to have that tradition of rote learning because it helped us bond. You could hear something two or three times, but because you were used to listening closely, You learned it. By the third time you heard it, you knew that song. And you began to now sing it at your church. And other people would pick up on things that when they visit your church, those what we call congregational songs, they would pick those up and then they would take them to their church. And before very long, you've got this growing hymnal, virtual hymnal of music that's starting to take place. And so I think that that was a big part at that time. And who were some of the other names locally that were the teachers of those choirs? Oh, there was certainly Betty Watson. Betty had come from a very musical family. I think there were 10 children in their family. Their dad, too, had been a pastor. And partly one of the ways in which many people became known was by the children that the parents had encouraged to actually learn musical instruments. 
That was key because you were always going to need someone to play the piano. So you would often go to these midnight musicals that I talked to and you would want to sing. They would ask you to sing, but you didn't have your piano player with you perhaps. Again, when I talk about this talent of rote learning, any piano player, they would announce, is there a piano player in the house? And somebody would come up to the piano They had no idea what you were about to sing, what key you were going to sing it in. But somehow you would start it, and they would hit a few keys, and suddenly they've now got the gist of where you're going. And before very long, you're off and running. (laughs) And it always amazed me how that could happen time after time after time. And I realized that was the gift of the Black church to music, that ability to hear so clearly and to anticipate so clearly. We all talk now about the call and response. We talk about how when the minister is preaching, the guy on the B3 organ, he knows just when to hit that key that is literally going to elevate the spirit of that congregation. And it was a learning experience, but every young organist learned it. Every young keyboard player learned it. They learned when to be silent and when to start playing. And they knew how long. If the congregation was high in spirit, And they felt like, oh, somebody needs to start a praise in this building. You would hear this long sweep down the piano key, and all of a sudden, this one note would be held. And you know, it's coming. (laughs) Now you're talking about African ceremonies. Absolutely. You're talking about that DNA that we brought with us. Absolutely. Across the ocean from what worship really was. Absolutely. You became a part of it. Absolutely. It was, we brought it with us. I often think we brought the drums with our heartbeat. It never left us. That rhythm, that sense of togetherness, that sense of being able to elevate ourselves through that music, through that sound, through that call and response— It made us community, and I can't help but believe that when the Africans got into this country, it was the one thing that could never be taken away. It could never be taken away because it has gone a hundred years plus, and now that same sense of rhythm, that same sense of remembering, that same sense of one spirit— we find today in our congregations in church. I always tell people, it's not the same as the blues. Slavery, we have a oneness with the blues that comes out of slavery. It comes out of hardship. It comes out of wanting something different. But the sense that came with us from Africa, those drums, that is the sound of heritage. That is the sound of joy. That is the sound of where we belong. And we integrated it into our church service because that's where we found that joy. You're so right. And I think Questlove hit it on the mark in Summer of Soul. Absolutely. When he really drew the comparison to the Yoruba religions and the circle Yes. Dance. And in fact, I remember telling Clara was that when Sly yes. and the Family Stone, yes. <laughs> when they were performing, they mm-hmm. did some physical moves yes. that you knew exactly where it came from. Exactly. It came exactly. from the church. It yeah. came from some of those really emotional things yes. where the spirit really got you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. On a recent interview, in fact, I was listening and they alluded to the documentary, and 
the issues that had come about with the Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis being there and never before really having experienced that sense of being part of a Black community. And I think a question was asked about Billy and his history of having been a big part of the church and saying, but we never heard that growl in the... And he said, it was because I was happy. (laughs) I was where I needed to be. I was happy. You didn't have to bring that there. What you brought there was pure joy, you know, (laughs) from being in there. And I always thought that that was a humorous statement. I thought, yeah, that's what we all got out of that. We didn't want, and we protected it. What district was your father's church in? And did you guys interact with the other churches so there were there were musicals you exchanged performances or those yeah we were part of the northern california district and i think i remember bishop stewart was over us all for the oakland churches and We, of course, had the tradition of the midnight musicals. And for people who don't understand, these are just musical events. They are where one congregation decides and publicizes we're having a midnight musical. And truly, it started at midnight and went on. And so other churches would volunteer to have their choir or their principal musical group all come to these midnight events. And you would hear a choir from Sacramento because people would travel for these. They were big events. And so if you were in your own service on a Saturday, you were watching the clock very closely because you knew you needed to be at the midnight musical because everybody your age and a little bit older, everybody was going to be there. I always say the young and the young at heart were always going to be at the musical because we all remember people who were way past their bedtimes, (laughs) but they were still coming to the Midnight Musical. (laughs) And the Midnight Musicals would take place on what days? They usually took place on Saturday night. Every now and then there was one on a Friday night following service, but most of them, as I recall them, took place on Saturday night. And the host church would always have their choir there. I always used to say it was just in case nobody showed up. It was always the job of the host choir to have a number of selections planned just in case they had to sing until everybody else arrived. (laughs) So, So it was usually the larger churches of the ones where they could sit maybe 300 people. you remember some of the names so of some of those churches? Yeah, they would be 8th and Grove. It would be Ephesians in Berkeley. Mingleton Temple, yes, that was another one. And Pastor Ross, I'm trying to remember the name of, he became a bishop as well Mm -hmm. in later years, but he had a large church. And then in San Francisco, of course, there was also Bishop Stewart's church. There were probably a handful of large churches that shared this responsibility of hosting Because there would sometimes be 25, 30 churches represented in a night from a soloist from this church to a quartet from this group to a musical ensemble or instrumental ensemble from this group, a principal singer that everybody wanted to hear from this church. You made a name in music. And you were part of those, what I call the first family musical groups. The Hawkinses were definitely, the Gills from San Jose was definitely one of the first families in music. I can remember people that later I ended up with in the Hawkins Singers. Those were people that I had grown up seeing singing. They were either my age or older, and I looked up to them. When Tremaine Hawkins sung, I just thought, oh, that's great. Tremaine is singing, and I can remember her from elementary school, 
and knowing that she sung. Those groups, when we would go to San Jose, I remember we travel literally as far as Prayer Garden. The Prayer Garden Church was usually the furthest that we would go south because they were in the San Jose area. And that's where I became familiar with the Gill family singers. And again, these are all names of families that I know, but I know them through music. I don't necessarily know them outside of that arena. They were the Lyons family. It just seemed like they were a lot more families that had created the Hills Yes, the hills. One of them. Absolutely. The uh, pointers. Oh, the pointers. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They absolutely created for our generation and our church community. They had created the household names. That's what I'll call it. They were the household names because you think of a song that you loved and you loved it because you heard Ruth Lyon sing it. It may have been recorded, but what you related to was when Ruth Lyons sung it or when Tremaine sung it or when one of the Watsons sung it or their group sung. That's what you remembered. We were all aware of the Claire Ward singers, the big national singers, but what we were more aware of were the people that we felt were outstanding in our own local musical communities. When did you first get involved or hear about the Northern California Youth Choir? I heard about it the morning that my father told me that I was in it. That's when I heard about it. Growing up, there had been another pastor who was the senior lead of the Department of the Church of God in Christ that basically oversaw youth activities in the church and youth growth in the church. And so he had gone back to a convention. And who was that? Pastor Johnson. He had been the youth superintendent in the Church of God in Christ for Northern California. He had been for several years. I think the individual who always ended up over the youth in the Church of God in Christ always ended up with people who were young at heart. They never lost that patience and that will to corral teenagers and young children and whatever. And that really does take a special person. So I had been used to going to events that Pastor Johnson had put on for many, many years, whether it was picnics or Sunday school conventions or whatever it was. I was used to going and my dad came home and he said, Pastor Johnson, is going to take a group of young people to a convention back in Washington, D.C., and it's going to be a choir. You guys are going to be a choir, and so you're going to go and be in it, and they're going to start practicing next Saturday night. And I went, oh, okay. And, and, and what, year, what year were you in school? I was probably 10th grade, I think. Yeah, I think I was 10th grade. I was... Definitely not of the age of consent (laughs) or (laughs) non-consent. So if he said it, it simply was. Compliance was (laughs) the rule. Yes, (laughs) compliance was the rule. And I remember thinking, well, it sounded like fun. And I remember asking him who else from our church is going. Well, my father, of course, he couldn't command anyone else to go. So I think I remembered saying to my friend, Chris Collins and Gwen Collins, hey, there's going to be this choir going back and forth. And we had a new friend, or I had a new friend, by the name of Linda Giroux. She was the niece of one of the congregants and had come to visit a couple of times. But over that summer, we had gotten really quite close because we found that we could walk to school together. And so she said, oh, can I come? And she's never in the choir or anything like that. And I said, oh, yeah, 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 you can come. And so it ended up, I think, actually just being the four of us girls, because I can remember carpooling together. 
And so the four of us came, and the person that we were most familiar with in leadership that first night was Betty Watson. And, of course, Betty Watson's dad had a church also in East Oakland, and I had known them because oftentimes when I would sing at visiting churches and Betty was there, she would come to the piano and play for me which I had always appreciated because I didn't know a lot of piano players outside my own church. That kind of cemented my relationship over the years with Betty and her sisters and everyone. So coming into the choir and knowing that they were going to be there, of course, now I'm really comfortable. Then I go my first night and I found, oh, Here's Ruth Lyons. Well, I know Ruth Lyons. And remember, these are all the names of the people that I have been growing up with and hearing and seeing at the Midnight Musicals. So going there and being a part of that on that first night, it was immediately comfortable. There were very few strangers. And if there were any, they weren't going to be strangers for long because you've got sopranos and altos, and basically you're going to sit with your group. And these are the people that you're going to get to know over the course of beginning to become a choir. And it was in those rehearsals that we cemented the relationships that was really going to become the magic of that music. Because I don't think you could have just pulled together a mass choir and came up with the Northern California Youth Mm. Choir. When everybody sort of assembled, what was the presentation that this choir was coming together for? Oh, it was, well, we're going to go to the youth convention. And I believe the first year that we went, it was either Detroit or Washington, D.C. I'm never really sure which place I went because I went twice with the group. And I believe it may have been Detroit the very first time. But we were told this. And so it seemed as if that was the target. So we were all there for that. And we wanted to be good when we went, because this was the first time I think many of them, many of us were leaving home to go somewhere far away. We were now old enough to realize that going to Detroit or going to any of these places was not like going to San Francisco. We knew we were going to travel for a while. Most of us could only equate the time that many of us, it took us to go to Alabama in the summer to visit relatives or go to this place or Louisiana or Georgia. Because if you had a car good enough, these were only families who really traveled that far abroad. And we all know from watching the Green Book, we know what black travel was during those times. So it wasn't easy just to pile everybody in your car and go to a family reunion in Georgia. You had to pass a lot of unknown territory. And so we were also now going to be doing this as teenagers on this bus. And we were going to only have our chaperones. So along with Again, cementing our relationships, it was important that we became a community within ourselves because we were going to be outside of our parents' purview and we had to become responsible for each other and each other's safety. I can remember stopping the bus and going to the bathroom. Girls didn't leave you in there by yourself. Somebody always waited until you were finished, and we walked out together. These were the unspoken rules of the road. We didn't know where we were going to stop and eat, but we always knew some research had been done to know that it was going to be okay to stop there. I think that had we not had that year of preparation, because I remember it as at least nine months to a year, Before we went on that first tour, we were solid when we got there. Mm -hmm. We had earned the appreciation of Maddie Moss Clark's mass choir when we got up to sing because we had honed a craft 
under Ed. I speak of him because I think his role was to come into that choir and make it more than just a church choir. Okay, so let me ask you about that. When you got into the choir, what was the structure of it then? You had nine months of preparation. What did that look like? Well, it was every Saturday night we rehearsed. I marvel at the fact that that many young people gave up their Saturday nights and traveled as far as some of them did. The Gills coming all the way from San Jose, other people coming from Berkeley, because this was a tiny, tiny East Oakland church where we gathered together. Half of us, I think, we filled up their choir loft. Absolutely. We filled up their little choir loft. Yet, at the same time, Each time we came, we were something different. And I don't know how to explain that. We were not there as part of our church choir. We were there as part of this new thing. And this new thing became an entity all its own. I can even remember not sharing a lot about it when I would go back to my church because it was kind of mine in the sense that nothing else had really ever been. And maybe that comes from the single-mindedness of it. We were there for a purpose. We were there to be an outstanding choir when we got to Detroit. We were there to represent the state of Northern California and to show them who we were. We sensed, even from Pastor Johnson, that he wanted us to be something special. And we, I think, took that on as a purpose and as a goal. So in that particular case, was it overcoming something? Was it such that the Northern California district hadn't been represented in the right way prior to that? Correct. Mm -hmm. Because not very many people, I mean, pastors would travel, because remember, I'm telling you about what travel was like for Black people at that time. So even the churches, usually when we were early on visiting congregation to congregation, the full congregations could not go like they can go today. Today, every large church has its own bus or has the ability to rent commercial buses from anywhere to take people. At that particular time, that opportunity did not exist. I can remember going to places in old, beat-up school buses that had been maybe bought by some parishioner of some church, and he made it a little side business to rent himself out to different churches that had to go to visit other places or to do things. And so that became our ability to move about in the beginning, those old beat-up school buses. And that evolved into the commercial buses. And I remember even the bus that we took that first year wasn't a very comfortable bus. (laughs) And I can remember trying to sleep on that bus because it wasn't comfortable. The seats were like straight back seats and you're traveling all the way to central United States. (laughs) It was not the same, but we did it. And we had fun because we had each other and we had a purpose. We were the Northern California State Youth Choir, and we came to be seen and to be heard and to have the state of California, the Church of God in Christ in California, recognized as being a part of this wider church community. Whereas in the past, these mass congregations maybe had only experienced two or three great preachers from California who went back, who got invited back to come and speak. And oh, oh yeah, I remember Pastor Cleveland. People would talk about Pastor Cleveland coming back to Detroit or coming back to different places to speak. Can you give me a little bit more detail about Pastor Cleveland? 
Pastor Cleveland was the head of the Ephesians Church in Berkeley, which was, to my knowledge, one of the largest church congregations in Berkeley. And he was probably early on, because of his ministry and because of the size of his church, able to pick up and travel much farther than many of the other pastors would have been able to travel. So his name was known. He was able to go to the big international conventions in Memphis as the church was finding its footing as an organization. He was able to go there and to be part of that. My dad, when he was in Louisiana, often talked about the founding father, James Harrison Mason, wanting to come out of the Church of God to become finally the Church of God in Christ, only because there was a slight difference in the messaging that made a difference to that first early Church of God. You know, no, we don't quite. He believed in the Pentecost, and he believed in that. That wasn't quite what they wanted. So when he left that congregation to found the Churches of God and Christ, that was a big deal. And my father remembers it and remembered being part of that early migratory church whereas he was the bishop of 38 churches. And I once asked him, how are you the bishop of 38 churches? And I found out that my parents were on the road constantly in Louisiana. They visited one of those 38 churches every single Sunday, from the tiniest to the largest. That had been their life. Talking to my older sister, who was nine years older than me, And asking her about that, I never realized that as a kid, she had traveled behind my parents from one location to the next location to the next. And I always wondered when I would go back as a small child, why so many people knew who I was in Louisiana. I couldn't figure out how we go to this church. And people seemed to think of me as a familiar And I think, I've never seen them before in my life. Well, they remembered my parents. They remembered that adoption. They remembered my dad traveling from place to place. And he was like a common household word to them. So being a teenager in Berkeley and getting a part of this choir and having the task to go to Detroit, that must have been huge. A very exciting thing for everybody. Absolutely. It was the first time I was truly going to leave outside of my parents. I was going to a place I had never gone to before. I was going to a church community that I had never experienced. And I was anticipating and excited about meeting this new community. And I can remember walking on to the diocese for the choir stand and looking out over that huge congregation and thinking, all of these people are part of me. They are all here because all of these people have experienced everything that I've experienced. And I just assumed that, that there was really no separation between me and them. So it wasn't as if our choir was there to show out or to be greater than. We were there to be our best for them. That's what we were trying to do. We were trying to bring the best of who we were to these people that we already felt were part of our family, of community. Mm -hmm. So In that sense, I remember someone asking me, well, wasn't it kind of like a competition? And I remember thinking, well, I guess because there were judges, whom I never met, to be quite honest, there was somebody somewhere making a judgment call. So explain that. Give me some detail about what the event was or what happened when you... Yeah, the event was the convention, the youth choir convention. And on one or 
a number, I guess, of the nights. And again, I'm young. I'm a high schooler. So understanding the organizational makeup of this is very difficult. But I know that I was in and at an event where numerous choirs had come together. And they had come together to sing individually, and they had come together to sing in mass. And so there were certain songs that we all knew in mass. And on especially, I think it was a Sunday, we always sang as the mass choir. Mm -hmm. You stood next to somebody from South Carolina or somebody from Detroit or somebody because you didn't just get to pool in your group. You were spread out. You were part of everybody. And I think that that was the most wonderful thing about it. But there was also that point in which you were showcased. And the showcase had to do with this judging that apparently took place. And again, as I said, I didn't understand it. And that was the choirs representing the different districts? The different districts, yeah. You represented your district, and somehow these judges made some determination of first, second, and third place on, I'm sure, because Maddie Moss Clark herself was very technical sometimes in her music, and so she was a person who, if you were off key, she was going to let you know. You're off key. (laughs) And Maddie Moss was overseeing the district? Maddie Moss was overseeing this. Maddie Moss Clark had been appointed on the more national level, the directress or director of music, and for the Churches of God in Christ. I talked about this budding new organization called the Churches of God in Christ. Well, as they began to create an organizational structure, their organizational structure began to break down into its different departments, youth, music, evangelism, ordination, uh, women's group. In the church, women had a department before they were ever able to have their own in the secular world. Mm -hmm. They were a part, and they were a group to be reckoned with because early on, there were women evangelists. When people talk about Azusa Street and being filled with the Holy Spirit, these were women that were coming out and becoming part of the forefront of the churches of God and Christ. It was, I think, inevitable that women would be ordained in the church of God and Christ because they had been such an integral part from the very beginning. And so Maddie Moss had this position, and as part of her responsibility, She was overseeing this huge mass choir, became her area of expertise. She decided and communicated with the heads of the music departments what was going to be learned in their home territory, because this is what the mass choir will be singing. So every choir master had to become familiar with that music. Because Maddie Moss Clark said, this is what we're going to be doing. In many ways, I think it was instrumental to have her in that position, especially with the kind of technical musician she was, because she was able to pull not only from her writing and the development of her children's career, she was able to pull together a sense of excellence in gospel music that maybe had not been there before that time. Now, she got a lot of ridicule because of it. She sacrificed a lot to do that, but I think she had a vision. And that vision is what we truly see in recorded gospel today. For the black community. So she set the standard. So the Northern California State Choir had their marching order, so to speak, from Maddie Moss. Exactly. And they patterned the way they operated based off of that. Yes. Interesting. Especially for their participation in that event. 
I remember months of waiting to get the details. Every time we'd go, it was like you'd be given a little bit of detail here and there down to, well, what's everybody wearing? Mass choir is wearing black and white. The mass choir will sing on these nights. And I think we've always had a tradition in as black people, as opposed to maybe other church traditions, we always dressed up for church. We were always taught that if nowhere else, you look your best when you go to church. So out of that sense of unity and looking your best came this whole tradition of uniform in the black church that actually, I think, helped to cement us. When you look at somebody you've never met before, and they're also wearing a crisp white shirt and a black skirt, you are together. You are part of each other. I always think that that's like that unspoken miracle of that community, the thing that we don't really think about. In every single tiny way, they were trying to make us part of a community. And they did that also because they didn't want us to leave the safety of that community. When people's children rebelled, Everybody came together to pray for them. Mm. It was not unusual for somebody to say, oh, pray for Sister So-and-So's oldest daughter. There's trouble there. Because they were working to keep us within that fold because they were also working to keep us protected at the same time. And so it wasn't just stay in the church to be in the church. It was stay in the church to be protected from this bigger world that will not protect you in this manner. And that's where so many, I think, of the activities of the youth groups came from. The Sunday school, the fact that YPWW always happened on early Sunday evening, it was to make sure that you experienced a little part of church on Sunday night. Friday night was always youth service. It's because you need to be at church on Friday night, not run in the street with your friend. And I can't tell you any number of times my friends would stand outside the church and I could hear their voices out there. And I think, where are they going? <laughs> you know, what are they doing? Maybe they're going to the movies, which I couldn't go to anyway, but... <laughs> I was like, maybe they were going to the movies or they are going here. But the one thing that was happening is my cousin used to have a joke. She'd say, church, church, church. Wednesday night, where are you going, Jean? Church. Thursday night, where are you going, Jean? Church. Church, church, church. My whole life is church. <laughs> and she'd be grumbling that to herself as she's changing clothes to go to church. We're going to pick up more of Kathy's conversation as she transitions from the Northern California State Youth Choir into the Edwin Hawkins Singers and just all the pieces and people that she met while she was there on part two of Voices from the Choir, Oh Happy Day Reflections. This episode was produced and edited by Stephen Clara Williams for Kite Choir Productions. Listen and follow for free wherever you listen to podcasts.